Well, good morning again. If you're new with us, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege this morning to turn with you to the Gospel of Matthew. I invite you to turn there to Matthew chapter 6. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 811. We're in a series looking at revival, God in our midst, curing our complacency, thinking about how we can be alive to God today, how our best spiritual days don't need to be in the past. And this morning we're going to read verses 19 through 21 of Matthew chapter 6. As you turn there, let me ask you a question, a question that I've been asking myself this week and I want you to ponder on with me. And it's this, how, how will you want to have lived Five minutes after you die. How will you want to have lived precisely five minutes after you die? Because we we know if you're a Christian this morning, if you have faith in Jesus Christ and he has saved you, then we know that after you die, it will take no more than five minutes. Five minutes at, at the very most for you to know without doubt and without hesitation that God was always in control of your life. Within five minutes, you will know without doubt and without hesitation that all things have in fact worked together for good. Within five minutes, you'll know without doubt and without hesitation that heaven is your eternal home where you rest secure for ever. Now, it's hard, is it not hard, for us to kind of keep hold of that perspective now, for us to try and get our arms around that perspective now, but in the perfect light of Christ himself, who you'll see not dimly, but face to face, we'll know, you'll know, I'll know exactly how we should have lived. We'll know for certain what, what was really important in this life and, and what was a distraction. We'll know what, what should we have poured our time and energy into and what was just a waste. We'll know what it is we were, we were made for and what's got in the way of it. With the clarity of eternity, you and I will be alive to God. We'll be awake to him. We will be animated by his grace. And I want to know, how will you wish you had lived then? <laughs> how will you want to have lived five minutes after you die? Well, one of the glories of the Christian life, one of the great glories of the Christian life is we don't need to wait to find out. We don't have to die before we know how to live. Why? Because God has given us his word. He has taught us how it is we ought to live. And not only has he given us his word, but by faith in Jesus Christ, united to him, he has given us his spirit, his spirit who dwells within us that we actually might live that way now. Now, Don't get me wrong. It's not as if our lives, the Christian life, your life, certainly not my life, is one of just endless certainty where you always know what to do. (laughs) We stumble, but we can stumble in the right direction. Stumble in the right direction with his word and with his spirit. What will be important in eternity can be important now. And revival happens We come awake spiritually. Revival happens now when we live in a way we won't regret then. Revival happens now when we live in a way we won't regret then. And and that's kind of been our theme, hasn't it, these last few weeks. We've been reflecting upon revival and how it is we can be alive and awake to God. 
We don't want our best spiritual days just to have been in the past, to be some form of, of yesterday. Nor should we settle just for the hope, a great and glorious hope that it is, that our best spiritual days will be in eternity. Our best spiritual days will be tomorrow. No, as a people, our best spiritual days can be here today. They can be now because Christ is with us now. And so together we've been considering some of the practical realities that bring this kind of spiritual life to us today. This morning we're going to consider one more from this text, a quality that is both a mark and a means of revival. A mark of revival in the sense that those who are spiritually alive practice this quality naturally and almost instinctively. A means of revival in the sense that if you practice this quality, you will find that life comes to your soul. What am I talking about? Well, the sermon title gives us away a little bit. Let's look at this passage in Matthew chapter 6 and consider the connection that exists between revival and generosity. Revival and generosity. We're going to see three things. We're going to see that generosity brings revival because it frees us. It focuses us and it forms us. Let's read together Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. Jesus is teaching and he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Father, you always speak clearly, but we don't always hear clearly. Would you give us ears to hear your voice in your word, that the overwhelming generosity of the gospel may take root in our hearts as well. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Point one then, generosity brings revival because generosity makes you free. Generosity sparks life in your walk with Christ because it brings freedom to you. We see this in verse 19, if you look at it with me, where Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. So Jesus says that it's quite possible to lay up treasures on earth. It's possible, not even sinful, to amass riches, to amass a great wealth here on earth. But what happens to these earthly treasures? See what Jesus says? Do things. First of all, these earthly treasures are great, but moth and rust destroy. Why spend your resources, Jesus says, on things that aren't going to last? Why spend your resources on things that are going to fall apart? You know, the day I, I drive a Honda Civic, the day, literally, the very day I bought it, someone dented it in the giant parking lot, <laughs> right? And on one hand, do you think they left a note? No, they didn't leave a note, right? On one hand, I was livid, right? And on the other hand, I just kind of smiled and thought, you know, moth and rust destroy. And why not get that out of the way? You know, that, that's going to happen sooner or later, right? So why not? Let's just start as we mean to go on, right? Moth and rust destroy. Uh, if that doesn't happen, Jesus says, well, then thieves break in and steal. So you spend money on stuff, then you have to spend more money to protect the stuff you just spent money on. 
You need insurance, you need alarms, you need security systems, and even those things don't guarantee that your stuff won't get lost or stolen. The more you have, the more you have to worry about. Notorious B.I.G., more money, more problems. (laughs) Or Ecclesiastes 5.12. Who knew the similarities? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. As for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. Reminds me of three quotes from three uh, famously wealthy men. First of all, William Henry Vanderbilt. He inherited $100 million in the 1800s, and he doubled it within 10 years. And he said, the care of $200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. There's no pleasure in it. Or John D. Rockefeller who said, I have made many millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Or Henry Ford, billionaire, who said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Now, the problem is, do you have this problem too? I just don't believe them. (laughs) You know? Like... Usually, I cut you a check. On the way, I'll cut you a check for 200 mil, and you'll be like, there's no pleasure in it, right? <laughs> um, uh, the problem is, our, our hearts just don't really uh, believe it. Deep down, we believe that earthly, tre- earthly treasures will make us happy, although, cor- of course, in another sense, we know that they won't. We're, we're torn and we're conflicted, and this is why generosity is so important. Materialism, which is for us of all people the great distraction of the soul. Materialism, which has a way of consuming our lives and enslaving us, is combated how? Through generosity. Generosity that brings freedom to us because the act of giving our resources away, the very act of doing so, reminds us where true happiness is found. The act of being generous, the act of giving our resources away, declutters our lives, enables us to live simply, free from worldly concerns. Free from worldly concerns. So, for example, do you know how much I worry about my $2,000 Rolex? Not at all, because this is a $15 watch I got at Target, (laughs) okay? And it tells the time, and it's got the date, and it's got an alarm and a stopwatch, and you know, we light, like, oh, yeah, and wait, big one, boom, 24 hour, right? (laughs) $15, all I ever need. Uh, This cause, I I have lost no sleep over this watch, right? Hey, on the way out, I'll give it to you if you want it, right? (laughs) It's kind of free from worldly concern. Or a better example, one of of our senior saints, uh, she's downsizing, and so she sold a number of her ornaments, and then she gave that money to, to one of our missions teams. And she said, ah, it's great. I don't have to dust them anymore. <laughs> great freedom. And then she said, and besides, giving is more fun when you're alive than when you're dead. Mm-hmm. Isn't that great? What, what does she have? She has freedom. 
freedom. She's, she's free from the control of material things on her life. And that's what generosity does. It brings revival because it makes us free. Frees us from materialism, frees us from worldly concerns, enables us to focus on those things that matter most. The problem is, do you really believe that? <laughs> do we really believe that? Leads us to our second point, which is, yes, generosity brings revival because it makes us free. But secondly, we see in verse 20 that generosity brings revival because it also makes you focused. Makes you focused. So uh, Jesus has said in verse 19, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why not? Because moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Jesus's argument, note, against uh, amassing wealth isn't that to do so is sinful, but just simply that it's just not a very good idea. It's not a very productive thing to do. It's a bad investment. He's saying the long-term return on earthly treasures is very poor. Everything you keep, you will one day lose. (laughs) Everything you keep, you will one day lose. Instead, he says, verse 20, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Why? While there, he says, moth and rust do not destroy, and there thieves do not break in, and steal. He's saying heavenly treasures have a remarkable rate of return. In Matthew 19, a few chapters later, verse 29, Jesus will say that uh, the return on heavenly treasures is, is a hundredfold. You will see, receive a hundredfold of whatever you give up for Jesus here today. And so you see what he's doing? He's shifting our focus. Focus. From, from, from where? From earth to heaven, from this life to the next life, from time to eternity, and saying that's where true reward is found. So, you know, our, our financial planners, they have, they have a hard time convincing us to think in, in the long term, a hard time to get us, to, you know, not just think about the day or the week or the month or the year, but to think of, of, of 30 year increments, to think in those longer scales where we'll find a greater return. Well, the Bible would suggest that for the Christian, thinking in a 30-year increment is only slightly better than thinking in a 30-day increment. Why? Because we should have a 30-million-year financial plan. That's where we expect to see a return. Not this year, not next year, not in the next 30 years, but 30 million years from now. And for all eternity. That's where true wealth is found. I wonder... If, do, you, do you have that? Do you have a 30 million year investment strategy? That's what, that's what this passage would, would call us to. A member, one of our members tells a great story of uh, hiring a, lo- a young lawyer to work in a, a law firm here in D.C. And the young lawyer did a great job, so uh, they sent him to do a special project on, on the West Coast. And he, he worked there for a while, and he was doing well. And then they were all confused to hear several months later that this young lawyer had, had left the firm to go and take a job at some like, an unknown startup. And the, everyone kind of scratched their heads and were bemused and kind of thought, this, this guy's like throwing away a promising career. And he's traded in like a really, you know, well-paid job for some speculative stock options in this unknown startup? Well, it turns out the unknown startup was called Google. <laughs> you may have heard that they've done, they've done okay for themselves, right? Uh, this young lawyer retired at 31. Uh, why do I tell you that story? Because in a sense, it's a picture of the Christian life. It's, a sense, it's in a sense, it's a picture of the Christian life in that the decisions we make should make 
no sense to the world. The financial decisions we make don't need to, to, to make a lot of sense to the world. Why? Because we know that we're investing in something better than Google. We know that the 30 million dollar, the 30 million year return on our investments will far outstrip anything we could do with them today. Generosity brings revival because it focuses our attention on the world to come. It focuses our minds so that the decisions we make today we will be pleased with not just five minutes after our death, but 30 million years after our death. Generosity helps us live now in a way that we won't regret then. Focusing our minds. So, generosity brings revival because it frees, because it focuses. Third and finally, generosity also brings revival because it, it forms. Forms what? Forms our, our hearts. Look, look at verse 21. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I love this little phrase that Jesus throws in. I love it just because it's, it's yet more proof as if it were needed that Jesus is the greatest preacher that ever lived and he understands us and gives us such practical advice. He says, this relationship, this connection between money and your heart, you might have thought that it worked the other way. You might have thought that things would be important to you, they'd be near and dear to your heart, and therefore you'd invest your resources in them. You might have thought that your money followed your heart. Jesus says, no, flip that. It actually, in reality, practically, functionally works the other way, in that whatever you put your money in, your heart will start to care about Wherever you put your money, there your heart will soon follow. Your heart starts to invest in whatever you've invested your money in. Now, I wonder if you've seen that play out in your life. Your heart starts to invest in whatever you've invested your money in. For example, I don't know if any of you support your alma mater. Right? You know, you've been years since you graduated and you haven't thought about it much at all. But then, you, you know, they, sent, they tracked down your address and they sent you that letter and you signed up and you started to give. And now that you've, since, since you've started to give to them, you're suddenly much more in the loop about what's going on with them. You know about the changes to the curriculum. You know about the changes to the campus. You know the name of the president. You know the record of the football team. <laughs> your heart has started to invest in the same place that you invested your money. Or consider, consider you buy buy some stock in General Motors, okay? You lived your whole life, never thought about GM. Now that you bought stock in them, you see Buicks everywhere, right? <laughs> you know the name of the CEO. When there's an article on GM in the paper, you take the time to read it. Why? Because your heart is investing in those things that you've invested your finances in. It's this quite profound reality that generosity brings revival because it has the power to change what you care about. Generosity has the power to change what you care about. So, so think with me. Five minutes after you die, what do you want your heart to have been passionate about? If you want it to have been passionate about you know, your home or your car or your clothes or your technology or your comfort and those little luxuries, or your status, or your appearance, then you should spend your money on those things, because that's what your heart will be passionate about. 
But if in you, as I think God has planted in us all, there's the desire for something more. That five minutes after you die, you want to look back and know that your heart was passionate about the poor. It was passionate for the homeless in our city. And it was passionate for the hundreds of kids in our county who go to school hungry every day. And it was passionate just about, not about the poor, but, but about the unborn. About the 3,000 children who are aborted every single day in this nation alone. And not just the poor, not just in the unborn, but, but about missions, about participating in God's incredible kingdom work, whereby those who are far from him will find their eternal destinies redirected, both here in this community and even across the world. If you want to look back and say, that's what my heart was passionate about, then those are the things that you should spend your money on. Why? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart will follow your financial investments. And so, here's the question I've been, I've been asking myself. Does my spending match the deepest priorities of my heart? Does your spending match the deepest priorities of your heart? Because Jesus is saying, if your money isn't in it, your heart won't be in it either. If your money isn't in it, your heart won't be in it either. Generosity gives us an opportunity to form the kind of people that we want to be, to form the kind of people that we are, that we might live lives without regret. So generosity brings revival because it, it frees, frees from worldly concerns, because it focuses us on the life that is to come, and because it forms our hearts that we might live life without regret. So understand then that by refusing to be generous, we don't just rob God and we don't just rob our neighbor, we also rob ourselves of revival. We rob ourselves of the spiritual life that comes when we steward our resources as God has called us to. Let me close with this great companion passage in 1 Timothy. Paul is reflecting upon these same ideas and he says, as for the rich in this present age. Now remember, uh, 99% of the people in this church would qualify as rich compared to Paul's present age. So as for you, McLean Presbyterian Church, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. We are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for ourselves as a good foundation for the future so that we may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, when we're generous, we take hold of that which is truly life. I want that to be my story and I want that to be our story, that we would be a church that is, is known for his generosity. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful once again for the scope of your word that you teach us profound mysteries about eternity and about how we can be assured of uh, salvation there with you, but how you also teach us a very practical, earthy, day-to-day realities like our finances that we might know how to live and how to follow you with joyful obedience until that, that great eternity. So thank you, Lord, for the simplicity of this teaching. We ask that you would use uh, your word 
to, to need this kind of gen- generosity into the, the corners and hearts of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I'll say the most important point to last. Uh, it wasn't in the sermon, but it's here at the supper. Most important point that the sermon is severely lacking without is this, that your standing before God is not based on your generosity toward him, but upon his generosity toward you. Your standing before God is not based upon your generosity to him, but upon his generosity to you. We aren't generous in order that we might earn favor with God. He has already been generous with us, and his price is free. And prices is, is, is free. The generosity of the believer is the natural response of the, how, how they have received such generosity from God. And that's what this table is for, to remind us of all that we have been given. Bread and cup that point us toward body and blood. Body and blood because Christ was broken and bled that we might have life and, and have it free that we might be sure of our eternity and that we might follow him here today. The generosity of God is on display. If we doubt it, we look to the cross and know, hallelujah, all we have and all we need is Christ. So as we come to take of this meal, we come with with a sense of joy, the freedom of knowing that all is well, both for now and for eternity, because all we need is ours in Christ. And the freedom to respond to that generosity, respond to that goodness, by seeking to live as Christ has lived on our behalf. As we come to this meal then, let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do thank you for this uh, opportunity to, to take and eat that we might taste and see your goodness and your generosity toward us. We're glad recipients, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.